So welcome to the latest episode of the We Belong Here podcast, powered by Civic Commons. I'm your host, Frank Nam, and I'm the project director for We Belong Here. Thank you, as always, to the Big Phony for the great intro music. Uh, you can check them out on our, our website. The SoundCloud is linked. Uh, I'm really excited about today's show. We have uh, three wonderful guests, and what ties them together is their work and their history in education. And as you know, education is something that's we talk about a lot lately with um, well, the school year starting in terms of the, the year starting, but what does that look like? How does that impact people, et cetera? I will, without further ado, I'm going to have them introduce themselves. Uh, and so t- tell us a little bit about yourselves. So let's go first with Kane. Hi, um, I'm Kane Lowry. I am uh, the principal at Aki Krosi Middle School here in Seattle. Um, grew up in Portland, Oregon. Did all of my formal education in Portland. I went to Portland State University for um, college and then Lewis and Clark College for grad school. After that, um, I moved to Atlanta, Georgia um, as a part of Teach for America. I feel and I know people have feelings about Teach for America. I think it's uh, it was a uh, really transformational time and experience for me to move to Atlanta, especially coming from Portland, a pretty universally white state um, and moving to Atlanta, Georgia, which is pretty universally black. I'm so grateful for that experience. Uh, was there for um, for two years. Um, I taught fifth grade elementary school um, in the SWATs in Atlanta, and then wanted to come back to the West Coast, um, but but wanted a little distance from Portland, and so I moved to Seattle um, and have been a teacher at Aki, an administrator at Aki. I spent a couple years at Cleveland High School um, working on their restorative justice work, um, and then came came back to Aki. So really, really proud. Um, to represent the South End um, of Seattle. Awesome. Yeah, as a fellow South Ender and uh, someone that coached Ultimate Frisbee at Aki Kurosi before Kane and then Kane and uh, others have taken over that program. So really appreciate the work that you've done. I don't know if uh, I was a coach more as much as I was just like a glorified fan on the side. So oh, maybe way more than me. I, I was just you know, cheering at, them on. <laughs> in middle school, that's like, that's coaching, right? Being that fan for them. So I, I'm going to count you. I'm going to count you. All right, let's go, uh, David. Hi, I'm David Bly, and I am the director at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation for the team that focuses on Washington State. I came here from uh, the suburbs of Chicago, where I grew up, and came out here originally to go to college in the early 1970s. Evergreen, transferred to the UW, got a graduate degree from Seattle University. I think some of the more important things for me in my story, one, are the circumstances into which I was born, unlike but Kane noticed about Atlanta. I was born into a very affluent suburb that was all white, but we were only about 10 miles away from all black Chicago. The family I was born into hammered into me and printed into me that um, I had an obligation to the world. So that's been a driving force for me and the models that my brothers had. My three brothers all were very active in community and politics. Skipping back here to uh, the great state of Washington, which has been home now for several decades. I've had a very varied career, Uh, 14 years at the Gates Foundation, very lucky place to be, Uh, the opportunity to support a lot of work that people like Kane and Anthony do. I came here from a a community-based, from a nonprofit, a community development organization called Enterprise Community Partners that focused on neighborhood development and low-income housing. And before that, I was a banker in the private sector. The first half of my career was in public service, working for former Mayor Norm Rice. And before that, former Congressman Mike Lowry. So I go way back. I've had a great diverse set of experiences. And I think it's 
what allowed me to actually communicate across many different environments, many different kinds of people, and listen carefully and treat everybody with some dignity and respect. And I'll stop there. Let's hear from Anthony. Good morning, uh, Anthony Shoecraft. I proudly serve as strategic advisor for Black Male Achievement and Racial Equity for the City of Seattle's Department of Education and Early Learning. Since we're going with uh, roots and nativity and whatnot, I'll go ahead and say uh, I very proudly hail from what I consider to be the crown jewel of Seattle. South End Stand Up, that's right, we're talking about Skyway. You already know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Very proudly from Skyway. And even though I'm a proud South Ender, I still made that courageous decision to graduate from the only high school uh, where any free-thinking adult uh, thinks should be going. And that would be, that's right, guessed it, Garfield High. It's a generational, it's a family thing. Don't hate me, just hate the legacy. After Garfield, I uh, was really blessed to attend uh, Hampton University, a historically black college uh, in Hampton, Virginia. I did my graduate schooling at University of Washington School of Social Work, the Evans School. Just been really honored to not only come from a family of servant leaders and service providers, whether that was in the church, whether that was in you know the community. Yeah, just really honored to have continued the legacy, a family legacy. And really, in my opinion, you know, as a black man, kind of an ancestral lineage, you know, of people who have always thought about those coming behind them. Uh, so to have my start in social service work, you know, literally on the front lines, you know, from a community-based uh, mental health practice to do work, you know, across either inpatient settings and K-12 settings, always been focused around uh, youth and opportunity, you know. So all of my nonprofit and public sector experiences always sort of had that common ground around uh, young people facilitating access to different realms of opportunity, college access. Um, educational equity, uh, mental health, you know, career, workforce, you know, and the like. That be me in a nutshell. Thank you all for uh, those great introductions. As uh, customary on the podcast, we like to start also with a check-in question. It helps us just, you know, spend a little bit of time thinking about a transformative or uh, impactful moment in our history, and we frame it in different ways each time. So this time we're going to th- frame it around education and belonging. So I'm going to ask you all, to think back upon your own education, it could be preschool, public school, private school, grade school, college, grad school, whatever you want. And thinking about, you know, where did you see belonging? How did that impact you in your personal education journey? Or the flip side is, if you felt othered or if you didn't feel belonging in particular at particular part points of your education journey, how did that impact you as well? And what could have made it better? And so I'm going to let you think that and marinate for a second. And then what we're going to do is we're going to go in reverse order. And we'll have Anthony go first, and then David, and then Kane will follow up. You know, I really appreciate the prompt, Brother Frank, because the notion of belonging is so profound. It's also, from my perspective, extremely complex because, and this is more framing for the way that I expect to, to kind of speak to it, but both can exist at the same time, a sense of alienation and a sense of belonging. And I think that's really central to my experience, you know, and as I think about my entire education career, you know, I think about, you know, I went to Rainerview Elementary School, you know, which is right across, you know, the street. And the first black educator that I knew and ever saw was someone that looked like Mr. Kane. You know, he was the principal and he was the only black principal that I ever met 
until, you know, I then went to Zion Prep, you know, the area's first African-American, you know, school. I had a really varied experience in that, you know, elementary school, never saw any black teachers. I just saw a black principal. And then years later, because, you know, someone who was raised very working class as someone who, even though my parents, you know, uh, divorced when I was very, very young, I am a person also that kind of rejects that whole, just the language around uh, deficit language, really around single parent household, because one, it gets me a little bit upset. Because my own experience was that even though my father wasn't physically in the house, there were still black men in the community who deposited into my life and poured into me. Those are ways that I think I really felt deep belonging was mostly from like a community context. You know, so in schools, even though I had one black principal, but most of my teachers were always white. I then go to Zion, uh, Zion Prep and all the black, all the staff there were black. Then and I'm still at elementary school. And so then when I go to middle school, <laughs> And then high school, I'm back to what my elementary experience was, is majority white, you know, staff, some black, you know, staff sprinkled in there. But my sense of, of feeling othered really came behaviorally because a lot of school systems simply just couldn't nurture and properly support a young black kid who was deeply frustrated and hurt because his father wasn't in the house. You know what I'm saying? And so I acted out in ways that I think, uh, as we often see, would have put me on or did put me on a track, you know, to what most think of as the, the school to prison pipeline. And thank God for, I thank God for people who prayed for me, people who believed in me and never gave up. Mostly that came outside of the school. Educationally speaking, though, I will say my most profound experience of feeling like I belonged was at Hampton University. And most people would, you know, for, for the obvious reasons, right? You're, and again, being native son here to Seattle, I think uh, even though Kane's not from here, I'm sure Kane's got a lot of experiences both here or even in, in Portland that being the only lonely is real as hell. <laughs> and it's frustrating. You know, you're looking at someone who I'm the first, I say this humbly, I'm the first African-American national champion in junior olympic history for the steeplechase and i never forget i'm on the podium and the oh the first and in that moment you know i'm 15 years old and i remember feeling like well why am i why am i the first even in what should have been one of my proudest moments i still have this notion of but why this is an organization that's 30 years old <laughs> you know what i mean and again so that also indicates that i was a distance runner which wasn't commonplace for a lot of you know black males you know so even though I had different points of where I felt alienation, whether that was through experiences in school, whether that was, you know, athletically, I had lots of moments of only like the, the, the lonely only rather. It gets more, I think, concentrated being up here in Lily White, Great Northwest, demographically and socially speaking. And yet I had just really extraordinary experiences of just feeling deep sense of affirmation and nurturing and belonging um, that I, again, put at the pinnacle of that, educationally speaking, when I went to Hampton University and still yet had very nuanced experiences of not feeling like I belong because Hampton University is a school where a lot of affluent families go. And I was there on athletic scholarship. So even though I was there with my people, you know what I mean? And quite frankly, where if I thought or sniffed myself, like I, you know, being the exceptional case in, you know, this advanced, you know, math class, I thought I was somehow, some way buying into this whole notion of there's something good about being the only lonely 
Well, at Hampton University, that was bottom of the food chain, right? You know, and 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 so that was something that was really powerful and instructive to me. But also, someone being raised very working class, I I just had a lots of breakdowns of like I also kind of don't feel like I belong here because it's a lot of folks here with long long money. So my own internalized stuff around class came up for me as I was sort of coming to my point of arrival, my own identity. You know, as a young person from Seattle, going to a predominantly black school that had these beautiful myriad and diverse experiences of community mentorship and, you know, being raised, you know, in a beautiful tradition of service, you know, Christian service or Christian tradition of service, being raised in a church, deeply rooted in my community here. So I'm not trying to kind of, you know, over philosophize, you know, your comment, if you will, but question lands on me. It's it's both, you know, I had, I had great experiences, instructive experiences around both that I've feel like we're coexisting at the same time just throughout many educational experiences throughout my life. The feeling of like full belonging is so profound and unfortunately really rare for us to to experience even if you know you're in a school like Hampton where you know for the first time it's not just a sprinkling of uh, people that look like you but it's actually like an entire school but then even then the, the intersections around class and all these different things that make us who we are Right, and that also causes othering in homogenous circles uh, in terms of race and ethnicity, and that's really uh, profound. And I just appreciate and the the only lonely. It's, I've I've heard of so many black people who've come to Seattle and have left Seattle because of the fact that if that that only the lonely you know feels so real, and to come to a city that's so starkly not diverse, you know, is surprising for a lot of people to to try to find their way and find their community. Yeah, I, I definitely. And I just say before we pass it off, I just want to, you know, and to that point, brother, like, you know, I don't want to speak for Kate or anyone else, you know, of African ancestry, but, you know, there's a lot of terms that we use, like microaggression and all that kind of stuff. But man, listen, just to keep it all the way, all the way funky. That only lonely, it's, it's, it's not even microaggressive. It is what I consider it to be a macroaggression because it's a daily, you know, thing. Now I'm speaking professionally, but. Just to, you know, add a bit more emphasis on that, you know, it's 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 a very real thing, you know, um, certainly part of our daily lives. But I've come to experience that as it is experienced to me, and that is a very much so daily lived macroaggression, you know. Mm-hmm. Definitely agree with yeah. that. <clears throat> I mean, how can it not be a macroaggression if it's right? Yeah. Right. If you can't come and show up your full self all the time, then that's a that's a macroaggression in, ter- in terms of your entire life for sure. Same question for uh, this time around, David. Thanks, Frank. And uh, thanks, Anthony. The comments were very profound, and the question is kind of a central one, I think, to how we live our day-to-day lives, but it's also the story of America uh, for 400 years. And the flip side of belonging, which I'll talk about in my case, is othering. And when you're born into circumstances, and this breaks down in many ways, and Anthony touched on two, at least. skin tone and class. You could also look to gender. You could look to cultural differences. There's a lot of ways to either feel like you belong, whatever your self-identity is, and it's just as likely other people who belong to other groups self-identify differently will other you. And the story between black and white people, I think, is largely our white people, white men like myself. I was born into a suburb where I could have chosen to stay on the track, meaning pretty much everything about society in my community was built to serve people like me. And it's very efficient, meaning 
We moved to this suburb because of the school system. It was top notch. It was the best in the country in its day. And um, they were very good at that. And it became a pipeline. Uh, if you were happy, lucky enough to be born or moved there, you moved through their school system. Large numbers of them would go on to Ivy League schools, elite universities, and they're the people in power right now. And some of them uh, willfully are ignorant of these issues altogether, and they just live comfortably in a world that was designed for them. And then there are people through experiences, in my case, my family, and what I was exposed to and the times I was born into that had profound effects on me. A lot of that got played out through the educational opportunities I had. Being an old guy, um, I was 11 years old in 1965 in a 100% white suburb of Chicago where Martin Luther King came to give a speech at our town square because he was being criticized when he moved north to push civil rights. He landed in working class neighborhoods on the south side of Chicago. And a lot of people said, well, what about all those rich people up north? So I was exposed oddly, really, given where I was born and when I was born to the movement. And I was also born during a time of the Vietnam War, which involved my brother's actions in terms of those sets of issues. So as I think about my education, one, it was solid, meaning I'm a really well-educated guy. I know how to read and write and do arithmetic. I can think critically. I'm lucky enough to have been hired at the Gates Foundation. And it's all accountable because of where I started in my early days in that school system. In terms of the belonging, Again, as a white person, you can either choose to just go down the track that was designed for you, or you have to very intentionally put yourself into situations that you would normally not be exposed to. You have to meet people you would normally not meet, because we can live very comfortably just staying within our own tribe, belonging to ourselves. And that actually is the story of white America. How many people are waking up to the fact that this is not the America that I was born into in the 1950s? And even in the 50s, this was a very diverse place. It's interesting to see that uh, in many places now, people of color are the majority. The society, the systems, slowly but surely are going to be designed for the majority. People like me have the decision here either to help build that so it's really high quality and humane or to resist. And that's what we see, I think, playing out in politics right now in America and on the streets literally right now in Seattle and other cities. So the belonging really was this mix of lucky enough to be born affluent with a family that felt they had a responsibility to the world and raised their children in a school system that prepared me to take those skills and that knowledge and apply it in ways that hopefully are helpful to solving some of these issues. And as an adult, I continue to try to put myself in situations that um, normally I wouldn't. I live in West Seattle. It's very hard to find a family of color within a mile of my house unless I go east on the other side of 35th Avenue into Delbridge and to White Center. But even Seattle, the level of segregation and therefore the level of othering or belonging is present every day. And I'm aware of that. And um, I, I choose to try to act against that. But it is really difficult, and you have to be willing to take some personal risks. And that's what Anthony's story, I think, was. You kept moving, man, through all of everything you just described. And you're a solid guy, and you're doing work that has meaning specifically on the issues of belonging and othering. So we all have choices, and it's my job to make sure that more people that look like me choose to actually get engaged and get exposed to what's going on for the other people. Thank you for that. I've been talking a lot about 
uh, belonging and uh, anti-racism work and anti-blackness work being uh, internal, being interpersonal, being institutional and systemic, like all four areas. And a lot of times we talk about the institutions and the systems, which like David, you said, were designed for people that look like you, right? And in that sense, it's working really well. We don't spend enough time, I think, and I think the whole idea of, you know, we belong here and civic commons and this work is that the interpersonal and internal work has to also be done equally, if not more so, because policies and laws and regulations can help protect people, can help make the lanes more even, um, but you can't legislate that people see each other wholly. You can't legislate love. You can't force people to, to not be uh, prejudiced against each other, right? And so we need to do that interpersonal work. And I think a lot of times, you know, a lot of uh, white people in this country don't do the interpersonal work because they don't, they live in very homogenous communities and they stay within those communities. And they, their realities are only the realities they perceive around the people around them. Their, their combined realities are the same. And so when they're faced with new realities, it's really um, jarring. It's important for all of us to keep doing that work internally, interpersonally, pushing our institutions to be better and to really make the system actually serve everyone, you know, in a powerful way to transcend like some of these historical, institutional, um, systemic things that are really um, impacting all of us. And Frank, if I can Any just comments? add a comment. Yeah, yeah. Please. I, I think that was really a great observation because it is very personal. It, the problem is everything's baked into society's structures, institutions, and systems ultimately. So if those don't change, we'll keep talking and we individually may be enlightened people. And, and that's hard to reconcile that. Like, so how do you work on this? Mm -hmm. And for those in places of privilege, they can um, remain willfully ignorant because they are comfortable doing that. And the, the issue is how do you get them to look at the world through a different lens? Because when they look at the streets and what's going on there, they're interpreting that in an entirely different way that reflects their belonging, you know, how they grew up, the experiences they had. And they don't really understand what these kids are living through that Kane's teaching. And I talk to people about our work in equity and education and the really miserable results in the region as it results to graduation rates, college readiness. Uh, how white kids do substantially better than all other kids. And people, white people, are surprised. They think everybody went to college and that everybody looks like them. And they're wondering why people like Kane and Anthony just don't pull up their bootstraps and get on with things. So it's these alternate realities, and they are baked into our personal brains, but they're reflected everywhere you turn, and it gets reinforced. And what's interesting about Seattle is it's well-meaning white people who have those thoughts. It's the liberal white people who voted for President Obama, but cross the street when they see one of my students walk in on the same side as them. That's what's really interesting about the Pacific Northwest is this idea of white liberalism is a badge of honor and people wear it. But when the rubber meets the road, then you start to see what's actually happening. And it, it's those people that I worry about the most. It, it's people, it, it's the white liberal who be, believes so strongly that we need to change society. But when it, when it actually comes to making decisions or having these interpersonal relationships, truths and reality start to come to the surface. That's, that, that's pretty alarming, actually. Kane, do you want to take a shot at answering that question? <laughs> I'll take a shot at it. <laughs> um, I love it. You know, something that Brother Anthony and, and Brother David both said that really struck me uh, as they were talking were this idea of 
their past being solidified so early on in their educational careers um, and the power that our school systems, our individual school sites, the teachers and support staff who work in our schools have in shaping the trajectory of students' overall outcomes and their life experiences. Um, and I think what struck me most is when I was in um, elementary school, middle school, and high school, and I have a twin brother, both of us um, were diagnosed with dyslexia, special education needs. Going through school as the other, you know, having to go to that special education class once or two times a day and feeling that anxiety and that stress and that embarrassment of having to do that on a consistent basis for years and years and years and years. Not to mention that being compounded by being a black student at a predominantly white middle school and high school. So you're already othered by your race and then further othered by the fact that you are in special education classrooms. Now, I see it all the time at, at Aki, right? Or in the school system where black boys are overrepresented and overdiagnosed with special education needs and then being placed in these classes that other them as a result of some need that's not being met that may not actually be special education services. And the way that I see certain families either use 504s or special education plans to their benefit, white families can use that to their benefit, while black families, brown families, families of color, it's a punishment in disguise as, let me help you. I remember being in high school and um, being in special education classes and my um, senior year of high school, the counselor pulling both my, my brother and myself in, or this was our junior, uh, I think it was my senior year actually, pulling my brother and um, myself into his office with my mom, who's white, and saying, you know what, we want to just make sure Kane and Jason get through high school. We want to make sure that they graduate. What we're proposing is that they graduate on a modified diploma, a special education modified high school diploma. And I think about that often now as the leader of a building that serves a majority students of color, high, you know, a high majority of students of color. Um, and we're sitting in this, um, this white counselor's office, white man, um, and he is telling my mom, it's really important that we do this, they can take PE classes for the rest of the semester and still graduate. And of course, as a high school student, you're like, well, if I could take PE for the rest of the semester, this is great. And my mom, of course, had the foresight to stop and say, that's not what, what I want. That's not what I want for my kids. And we went home and had a conversation about it. And I look at that so often because had my mom either not known how to navigate the system, not felt enough power and privilege to speak up when you have someone who's supposed to be a trusted adult in a building who's doing what's best for you. Um, be advocating for what they believe is the right thing. Had she not done that, my whole life trajectory could have been different. You know, limited access to higher education in college. I went to a university. I went to grad school. I became a teacher. And now I'm a principal. And that really sticks out to me. It's like the power that people in buildings have to shape and transform young people's lives the power that they have in 
either creating a sense of belonging, you're worthwhile, you deserve to be here, or completely othering whole groups and swaths of people. That is a really powerful position to be in. And I don't think that as educators in a system, we all are either aware of that power or we are aware of it and we choose to to wield it so irresponsibly at times. Um, and that is really something that, that's, that sticks with me. And I remember feeling like I didn't belong so often. And I think that I really took that into, um, into teaching. You know, when you go into a classroom, there's all these social dynamics between students. And I remember really paying attention to and being thoughtful about how to make sure everybody in class felt welcome. If a student is speaking up to read and they're stumbling over words, that nobody else is giggling or laughing or smirking or doing any of those things because you really, like those things seem so small um, and minuscule, but they're not. They have such a tremendous impact on kids um, and how they perceive themselves as learners. That I think is something that, that I've always tried to be aware of. Something that Brother Anthony said uh, <laughs> that made me smile was this feeling of, you know, the feeling of belonging when he went to Hampton. And when I moved to Atlanta, I had a similar experience. You know, almost all of my friends in Atlanta um, are Black. And their, their experiences were so different from mine because, you know, I had friends who, it was like the Huxtable family, doctor and lawyer as parents. It was so weird to me because that wasn't my experience. But I remember this sense of just racial relief, I, I think. It's like having this feeling that you can finally breathe freely at all times. You never have to be on alert. You're just like, oh, this feels so good and feels so natural to me. You know, there were other things, um, like we talked about earlier, just, just class differences. But being able to be around a group of people where you're not necessarily always worried that somebody's going to say something stupid in regards to race. And not just that it's something stupid, but it's something that you have to make a decision as, to, oh man, I, I actually can't kick it with you anymore because I don't want to live in fear that you're going to say something unintentionally that I have to then lower myself or be humiliated and continue to, to be your friend. And that's that feeling of just like pure relief is something that I have never felt before outside of my family. Um, and it's really, really like a, a, an interesting and a good feeling. You know what I mean? No, I appreciate that. Uh, that feeling that you got in Atlanta, you know, me going to Hawaii for the very mm -hmm. first time and getting off the plane and just looking around and seeing like majority, like API folks. I was just like, I literally said out loud, this is what being white is. <laughs> yeah. Any thoughts from the others about uh, Brother Kane's uh, comments? Yeah, lots of things I could talk about here. It's very interesting. I'm learning a lot. Thank you. A, a few thoughts, and one of them gets back to, you, to your comment, Frank, that this up plays out at so many levels. And the stories we're hearing from Kane and Anthony and my own really are very personal. There were moments, there were individual people, usually adults in our life, that did something that allowed us to continue to navigate through to where we are today. And, and that feeds this myth that I mentioned earlier, that if we all just lend a hand to each other, eventually everything will be okay. But you are also up against, to this very day in your jobs, uh, structural institutional forces that make it very difficult for you to either feel like you belong or that are at least barriers to your movement to wherever you want to go. 
that's part of the complexity here. I also want to put in a slightly different word for white people, meaning <laughs> the sense of belonging is most obvious in America for obvious reasons around black and white skin tone and white. We did mention there are other factors that around self-identity. I've mentioned gender as an example or class. And living as a white person, I married a working class white woman from Georgia, just outside Atlanta. Her family's background was working in the carpet factories out there. They were poor white folk. Her father was the first person to get a college degree, and he did it at night in his 30s. It adds this other level of nuance because, in fact, because you don't experience what I do, there are actually severe divisions even within my race that reflect the circumstances in which all these other people were born. And that, if she was on this call with us, um, she would have a totally different story than the one I told you. And we can't take for granted just on site where people are coming from, or what they've experienced and what they believe or what they're willing to do and the risks they can take. Lastly, I would just say going back to education, uh, you're doing the Lord's work, Cain, literally, and you described it, meaning what these kids experience that you touch is very determinative of what they're going to um, experience later in life. You have a big load on your shoulders because you're in a system that, too, is broken. Um, it's not just about race. It's an underinvested school system. We know how to educate children. I'm proof of that. I went to a great, well-funded school system, and those white kids did really well. If you had those resources in your schools, I guarantee you it wouldn't be a question, how do you educate these poor kids of color? You would just educate them because we have the tools and the knowledge to do that. There's other root causes out there that make it difficult to run a school like the one you run. Well, I'll say, David, at the risk, I never, I always worry about saying this, um, but my view on this is not actually resources. Aki as a school site has a lot more resources than a lot of middle schools in Seattle does in terms of monetary um, funding. We always need more. So yeah. <laughs> let me put the plug in. So we always need more. But <laughs> the, the issue to me is not necessarily resource. It's mindset of people who work in a building and a system. Aki could get $5 million. And if we still work under the same mindsets that we have, the issue for me is really recruiting individuals to work in a school building who have an anti-racist mindset. The resources are, are, are so valuable and helpful, but give me a teacher who can stand in front of kids, and we have lots of them in our building, who can stand in front of kids and deliver rigorous instruction through a culturally responsive lens. That's really what I need. And maybe the resources are like, what does it look like for recruitment and development of, of teachers of color, number one. Secondarily, white teachers who have a, a, an anti-racist frame that's what's really so important to me in terms of getting the right people in front of kids every single day, delivering on that high quality instruction every single day. I mean, then there was something else um, that you said that I wanted to come back to. You, you talked about the risks that uh, white people have to take or are called to take. And I think that's where we, we really need to move is that it shouldn't be the obligation of people of color. Um, or any marginalized group to do to to teach white people what to do. It is white people's responsibility 
to work within their group to figure out how to do right by each other and, and society as a whole. There's, you know, there's a whole bunch of talk about um, this idea that we didn't create the problem. It should not be our problem to fix. We are the victims of the problem, but it's sh- it's not a problem that we created. And so, when I'm talking about white people, um, it's a universal term. But white people are not monolithic. I understand that, but it really is on white people to fix that problem and how they go about doing that um, and what that looks like and at what pace and rate they're they're willing to engage in those risks is that, I I think that's the important question that we need to be asking and pushing. Yeah, really appreciate both of your comments. You know, what what's what's jumping out to me, uh man, I, there's so many things that you said, Brother Kane, just in reflecting on your experience that just resonated on so many levels. But I, I do want to come back to one point that I think ties into what what you and brother Dave uh, just just leaned into something that uh, David you said earlier. I feel like I'm just I'm just sitting with because Kane said it really well. There's no culture that exists on the planet that is a monolith, and we understand that. Oftentimes, I think when we're in conversations where we're talking about intersectionality and nuance and the complex the tension between the different complexities. Uh, as you know, you, you talked about in your share, brother Frank, but I always come back to this point, like race is still the pinnacle issue. (laughs) Like, do you know what I mean? Like, like no matter how you cut and dice it, at least from my perspective, it is always the central issue. I just think it's just very easy. I think when we, you know, look at, you know, systems and we, we, we launch into analyzing institutions and structures and the conditions and the environment, all of which are essential. Race is the issue that is the driving factor for why we have so much widespread othering within our education system. And that just needs to be constantly named. You know, the well-intended liberal, white liberal, whose lips say one thing, but feet walks in the opposite direction, is still running away from an issue of race. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? The teachers, you know, that, you know, Kane are, are referring to or maybe some, you know, climate dynamics still have a common denominator around a racially identifiable issue. You know, so, yes, while education is largely a broken system, we just can never get away and try to, I think, mystify the fact that we're essentially talking about an issue of race. One thing that I, I think about, and, and, and quite frankly, I also believe a deeply anti-black issue. Very rarely, at least in a lot of conversations that I have, there are two legal precedents, two cases that went all the way up to the Supreme Court that, honestly, y'all, continue to remind me that anti-Blackness is very much so a fundamental U.S. export. And I'm reminded of the case of Ozawa versus the United States in 1922 and Thind versus the United States in 1923. Those are two cases where people did not sue to become black. They sued to become white. And there's something that's so, to me, critical. We're almost talking a century ago. And yet, and still, we're still dealing with these issues. And yes, we're talking about issues of race and class and privilege and gender. And yet, and still, we're still dealing with racially identifiable manifestations of Issues are, are issues around race, are fundamental issues around race, and by definition, othering. 
And it's always against the backdrop of whiteness. And so none of what none of what I'm hearing Kane say is trying to get students of color and black students to be at the same level as white because whiteness should not be the paradigm. That's not the model, right? But how do we reimagine a, you know, our educational uh, community where it's not these knee-jerk sort of technical fixes where we're just looking at trying to just get, you know, black and brown students, you know, indigenous students up to the white standard, but we're reimagining what belonging, how to institutionalize belonging. And that's deep work. These issues are multi-generational. By definition, they require mm-hmm. long-term investment, <laughs> you know, and sustained attention. You know, I think about my mom and, you know, shout out to Brother Kane for mentioning his queen of a mother. And then also without going into too deep into it, I appreciate you just even intimating the nuances of what it really means. I just, I just thought as a, as a biracial black man, brother, that was a powerful story you mentioned about your mom. As we're, you know, dealing with these issues of like belonging and looking at graduation rates and whatnot. For me, I tend to put a lot more value in the research and my experience of it's not about those things certainly matter. But how can we really create school settings in a school community where students really feel nurtured and welcomed? At the root level of that, that macroaggression um, that we talked about, the lonely only, there's other forms of macroaggressions, as we know, that happens to kids on a daily basis. And if we know anything about cortisol in the brain, we know what, it, what impact of stress does. You reduce that impact and that trauma when a child is really nurtured in the environment where they feel like they belong, where they're reflected. And I was going to the point, you know, the power of, of Kane's mom as it relates to my mom, because I have, I don't say this very proudly, but there was a point in time in which I had a very storied behavioral career in several schools as an elementary school student. Earlier when I talked about, they just didn't know how to deal with the very frustrated black boy who was simply longing for the belonging of his dad in the house. I just had no, right? My mom community the best that they could, but my mom took me out of SPS and put me into Zion. And the differences were different. And it wasn't like, you know, Zion was overly re- more resourced than SPS. They weren't. But the way they held me was materially different. So I was one of those kids where I would act out behaviorally. This is when I was in SPS, but I'd be flying off the charts academically. About this weird bilingualism, right? When I got to Zion, a completely different environment. And not, not only that, like academically, I was actually pushed up a year ahead. They were able to diagnose this kid is not a bad kid, as what was the label, right, that would follow me. This was simply a child who was bored and a child who needed more social emotional support. But through, like Kane said, a fundamentally different disposition that was culturally responsive and went beyond more skin tone and just being wrapped within a cocoon of blackness by virtue of staff, right? But it was the pedagogy. It was the instruction. It was the cultural moves and nuances that I saw on the walls. It was the curriculum, right? It was some of the, 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 the customs and tradition, traditions, in some ways, even like rituals, some religion, like all those things made me feel like I was right at church, right at home. Those are some of the, I think, some of the long lasting just impacts of my own you know, story as to like why I'm so passionate to be working with Kings, like, you know, Kane to really be, you know, just think about, you know, what does it mean? And I'm giving him a shout out because those of you that know about the work that I do around, you know, Kingmakers, 
Kane is the principal of one of the Kingmakers, you know, foundational schools. Kingmakers being a culturally responsive model for black males in SPS. But the reason why I'm so passionate about these kinds of, and it's not even about a program, programmatic move. It's actually more about a leadership and environmental move <laughs> about mm-hmm. disguising the vegetables. You know, for those of you that parents, y'all know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but that's what it is, right? So environment is what I'm often reminded to about how do we radically reimagine the environments in which our children are being affirmed, nurtured, mm-hmm. while also maintaining high quality instruction and pedagogy, but in the way that um, affirms them who they are. And again, the last thing I'll say is, I think a lot of a lot of my my hard nosed techno like education technocrats would be like, oh yeah, well you know, uh, ABCs matter. Yes, it does. Uh, career college readiness matters. Yes, they do. I often just ask to recall those like it's not either or. That's the fundamental just wrong starting point. It can be both. And secondly, as a black man who is about to turn forty two years old, I'll be very transparent with y'all. I got my radical awakening at the age of 30. That's damn near criminal. Now, it doesn't minimize anything that I learned up until then. But when I tell you my radical cultural awakening, again, this is past me going like at Hampton. It's all cumulative. But how is it that I come into my own sort of identity coming so late in life? And that's happened for a lot of a lot of black and brown kids, specifically black kids. Right. And it's not to put that responsibility on the school, but given how often or how much time children spend in school, this is why we have to radically think about issues of identity and belonging as it relates to belonging for our kids as one of the critical and essential pathways for how we're developing the next generation of learners and the next generation of take your pick, right? We can't keep isolating it as like the cute, you know, convenient loosey goosey stuff it's actually core if we're not raising children who are grounded in themselves and we're just thinking that we're just sort of depositing some kind of a technical skill on them we're really really we're really raising children who are not fully becoming themselves is what i'm really trying to get at that makes sense one thing i just want to touch on that you said um brother anthony is that that the power of radical imagination how we need that right when I, when I think about resources that we need, we need many resources, but the resource that I think is most deficit is the power, like imaginative power. Like we can't, we're not reimagining radical new ways to do things to, to not, like you said, right. And like the, the idea of like the achievement gap between white students and uh, non-white students is not the goal, right? The goal is beyond that. we have to radically imagine a, a new goal, right. For everyone. No one, no one is getting the proper amount of healthcare. No one's getting the proper amount of education in terms of like the way they fully can show up as themselves and fully feel like they they thrive and have real well-being. And so to do that, we have to radically imagine systems and schools. And we can't do that if your mindset is only a specific way. And Kane was talking about this with teaching. If your mindset's stuck in a way that it's just the mindset that you have and you're not open to transforming your mindset by you know, being open to more ideas and new people and new thoughts of ways of thinking, then you're always going to do things the way that you did before. And that's why the system works because it, it wants people to keep staying in that same mindset and staying in the same circle. Unless we break out of that cycle and that circle, we're not going to be able to trans- have any transformation, any transformative works. I love that you also called out like, you know, not just, it's not just racism, but it's, it's anti-blackness, which is something in this country, right? We have to name. It's not, I think racism that's a part of it, right? But we have to name that because 
being as an Asian American immigrant that came here in the 70s, like the, the rights and the benefits I get and the, the, the privileges I've received as, you know, my access to, to citizenship, et cetera, are on the, 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 the great shoulders and work of my brothers and sisters in the civil rights movement and, you know, who fought during Jim Crow, during segregation. And that's something that I think about a lot because a lot of my parents' generation don't think about that as immigrants. They just think we just got to this country and we worked hard. And I think that's why a lot of sometimes new immigrants get stuck in that like bootstrap mentality because, well, I got here and I worked hard. So like, you know, why doesn't everyone do that? And it doesn't, they don't understand like the privileges they've received because of the work before them. And so I appreciate you saying that. I also now want to give a chance, uh, starting with Anthony, to pitch something that you're working on. Because the whole idea here is to not just have this rich conversation and get to know each other, but also be able to like share something that you're doing. So that if there is some, if there is something that we can support or amplify at the very least, like we can do that for each other. Well, I, if it's okay with you, I would do one, um, one professional and one personal. Um, the professional one that we're working on is um, at Aki. We're taking a big leap to do um, a lot of our race and equity work through through affinity groups. Um, and so breaking our, our, our school staff up into racial affinity groups, specifically as it relates to or in reaction to um, anti-blackness, um, particularly the recent just horrific public murders of black people. And so starting to think about what are the implications for our work in a school building on a daily and consistent basis um, and doing that work in groups where we can move forward. Oftentimes in a school building, when we come together as a whole collective community, especially around race and equity, we're in this dysfunctional and cyclical relationship um, where we're not moving forward. And so um, my hope is to multiple points during the year, bring our whole staff together um, and push us forward. But some of that back work has to happen um, in, in racialized affinity groups. Um, so any insight or help uh, in navigating that work would be, uh, would be greatly appreciated. Um, and then the other thing, um, I, I told Frank and, and Brother Anthony knows um, this, but we are having our, our first baby in September. We're having a little girl. Um, so I am so excited behind that, but also very terrified about how to do this <laughs> um, and how to do it well. Um, and I, I think conversations that my wife and I have often, my wife is also um, biracial, she's Japanese and, and, and white, uh, and just thinking about what our baby is going to look like. And as a result of that, how does she navigate through the world? Um, and how do we be responsible parents in helping her navigate the complexity of her identity and how she relates to other people um, throughout the world and just being really proud of um, of who she is and from where she comes is important to us. I don't know how to do this. So <laughs> let me know if you guys know, let me know. Let, let me know what's up. I appreciate that. I have no help for you because as a single man in my late 40s, um, yeah, I think Brother Anthony is really your, your, your sweet spot <laughs> here for that. Thank you for sharing. Uh, David, what's uh, something that you are working on? I'll follow uh, Kane, one personal and then work. Uh, on the personal side, the flip side of your new baby is I got three grown boys who are <laughs> transitioning through college or through the military into a very odd world right now. But I worry a lot about my children's future, given the kind of workforce and society they're walking into right now. And I try to get through that 
through my work. I do a lot of things. I'm very lucky I to work at the world's largest foundation. Uh, the world's problems, however, are bigger than even the world's largest foundation. Um, and a lot of the work that we've been talking about, we have funded and supported, and we will continue to do that. Uh, the one area that uh, really sticks out for me is my own personal passion, a theme that was not intended, but it ended up following me all through life, is this issue around homelessness. Quite literally, the first thing I did uh, professionally was a community organizer, a tenant organizer in Seattle around issues of housing instability. As I uh, moved through my career, I was lucky enough to be part of a team that wrote the first federal policy on homelessness, including the McKinney-Vento provisions that apply to schools. And when I went to work for Norm Rice, again, I was the guy that uh, everybody's yelling at because I couldn't solve the problem, but it was pretty interesting have written all that policy and all these wonderful concepts and then get back down on the streets in the city and see, wow, it doesn't quite play out the way you think it might. And more recently, um, through our work, we've done a lot of work around family homelessness on my team for 15 years now. Some of that has spun off into schools as what should be an oasis of love and care for homeless children because they're not getting it outside of school for circumstances they don't control and their parents don't either. And there's been a lot of improvement, actually, in Seattle Public Schools, but a lot of districts beyond what the feds required them to identify who these kids are and to transport the kids. We haven't done a very good job even doing that initially, but now they do a better job. The question now for people like Kane, who are in the school buildings, is, so, wow, look at the kids, look at the barriers, look at what they don't have, and yet you still have to treat them as an asset that you can build and help them overcome the circumstances. So there's work going on at a place called Schoolhouse Washington that has pivoted from simply asking districts to do what they're required to do to begin to actually provide some ideas around practices and tools in the school building and in the classroom so that educators can actually figure out how to deal with what other fields would call adverse childhood experiences, things that have really experiences that have profound effects on children lifelong effects. And if they aren't addressed when they're experienced, they will have a very difficult time as an adult. And that's the power that came that you've got. And I know how hard that is. So it's not a criticism. It's just the systems have had a really tough time coming to terms with this. And they still do. There are 5,000 kids in schools in this region right now that are homeless. So it's not a small problem. I just want to say thank you because the work that you're doing around that, particularly the work that's been done around McKinney-Vento. With this pandemic, we as a school have been able to serve so, so, so many families who just come to our school who need resources, and either they're accessing those resources through McKinney-Vento or other programs. It really has been a lifeline for so many of our families. And without it, I, I don't know what would have done as a school. Um, it, when I was in middle school, we experienced homelessness for um, a short period of time, and we're um, lucky enough to to have family friends who we stayed with for six months. So I know what that feels like. Your work around that has a profound effect uh, on a daily basis. We have families accessing all the time. So thank you for that. It's good to know it matters because the problem's been around for about fifty years here, and I'm aging along with the problem. But um, it's good to see progress. Yeah, it's it's been a lifeline for us. I can definitely say that, and has been for a long time. Yeah, I spent three years at Treehouse and the impact of McKinney-Vento on families and youth 
experiencing uh, the foster care system is is incredibly uh, impactful. When people talk about McKinney Vento, it's always like these hushed like terms in terms of like just appreciation and like the power of like legislation and policies actually having impact on people directly. So thank you for that. And Frank, um, that shout out on yeah. Treehouse, they are unbelievably great at serving what otherwise are deemed kids that can't be educated and they get shoved off to the side. And Treehouse has shown that it is possible to serve these kids well. Oh yeah. The educational outcomes sound like such a transactional thing, right? But just like, I think just if you ask the young people that come through the Treehouse's programs, I think like just feeling completely like human and like loved and mm -hmm. cared for and like so that that education and trauma is something that's part of their lives, but it doesn't, you know, predict their lives, right? And so the work they've been doing uh, has been, I've been so, that was my, the first nonprofit I ever worked at was at Treehouse for three years. And I ran, to, ran a mentoring program for young people in high school to go on to post-secondary experiences and finding mentors for them. I mean, that really springboarded me into where I am now in terms of who I, what I care about, who I care for, how I show up, et cetera. So I appreciate the, the Treehouse reference here in this uh, podcast. Anthony, what is, uh, you, you got so many things going on. So like, I would love to hear like something you want to pitch today. Tell us, tell us about it. Man, uh, in the truest form, Kane is always leading and influencing, which is why he doesn't, well, he may know this, but why it is my prayer that the brother becomes somebody superintendent one day, uh, <laughs> you know, so. Uh, you heard it here first. I don't know if I'm out. We, we belong to the podcast. Does Kane want Some, it? Somebody is probably it. listen. Listen, we we want Kane. Uh, that's nothing about Seattle. I'm just saying somebody's. I'm just the brothers. His brilliance is it always just leaves me uh, inspired. But I'll follow his lead as David did in terms of making the personal professionals. Really, when I was going with all that, my role it's it, it is I count it as a tremendous privilege to. You know, be working in a in a in the public sector to be working, you know, within institution like City of Seattle and to really have a portfolio that is laser focused on racial equity through improving life outcomes for young black men and boys. As a native son to this city, um, it is an absolute privilege. And I tend to kind of uh define my work through like a three part framework, you know. As uh, the city, we're not the doers, <laughs> you know, and not even getting that twisted. But, you know, we're a funder, you know, we're a convener. And because we have the power of the policy apparatus, we're an advocate. What we say is important to city life as the entity that is at the intersection of both public and private life is what we, I think, by definition, say is what we're advocating for as important through what we sort of cast in policy. So leveraging, leveraging that platform in service to my charge, um, in service of the lives of young black men and boys, the project that I'm really focused on is just that. So like really wanted to accelerate and uh, not to say, especially now, but I think right now just opens up the window even more to be even more courageous, you know, as an insider on the insider side of the equation, I should say. Um, to really bring more systemic accountability and measurable accountability to how our investments, how our policy making and development, and even our, yeah, yeah our investments, um, and then our ability to bring folks together, again, all in service to radically and dramatically shifting the outcomes of young Black men and boys in education, health, economic mobility, 
uh, safety, and because connections matter, uh, positive connections to caring adults. So what that looks like concretely is how to bring more, you know, as working in the department that is overseeing, you know, the $640 million voter approved education levy, how can I leverage my role in service with my colleague to just bring more and radically more racial equity accountability to education and SPS through our investments in the levy? That's the number one. You know, again, uh, my leading, I should say, focus is really through the lens of Black male achievement. And then personally, this was tough, man, to, <laughs> to think about. But it's a similar you know, vein. I'm a part of a uh, group of uh, brothers who um, we run a foundation. It's a scholarship foundation. And it's a scholarship foundation that was really formed out of a need. I tend to think about this foundation as the manifestation of a lemon tree. Planting a lemon tree out of a very sour situation. A while ago, 10 black young men were promised a scholarship by an organization out of state. It never came through. We tapped the community to make them whole. Well, we raised more than the excess uh, amount. And we brought back to the families, the 10 families, who this unfortunate situation sprang from. And we went to them and said, what would you have us do with the extra? They didn't say give more in scholarships. Use that as a seed to make sure we're never here again, where young men and young people, young black males that are promised an opportunity for higher education won't go without. Do something different, you know? And then also think, don't forget about the kings, the young, the brothers who are returning back to us. So it's great to be, to join the traffic jam of scholarshiping organizations and entities, but let's not forget that brothers who are coming out of the system the penitentiary also have aspirations to build some skills, to have entrepreneurial dreams, educational aspirations. So um, what we're looking to do now is really take that concept and honor the family's wishes through this foundation. And we want to really build a endowment fund, the state's first endowment fund for black males and utilize that fund to invest in the entrepreneurial and educational aspirations of black males across Washington state. So right now we're kind of in the planning phase. That's one that I am really, really you know, passionate about. I appreciate you all uh, so much for coming on to the podcast. I want to thank the listeners uh, for listening and tuning in. Uh, if you appreciate this conversation, there's definitely more and you can always subscribe. For now, I just ask everyone to stay safe, stay healthy, continue to build, build bridges, and remember that we all belong here.